If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Support for Green Dreamer comes from our listener patrons, people like you. If it's inspired you, if you're learning a lot from it, if it's become a part of your routine and you'd like to see this independent show continue into 2020, you can support Green Dreamer starting at just $2 per month by going to greendreamer.com support. And thank you so much if you're already a patron of Green Dreamer. The earlier that you get someone interested in at least trying something new, as well as being a healthier option, then once they get older, they will continue those patterns and trends. What we've noticed is it's harder for an adult who might have been eating fast food for the last 30, 40 years to change that pattern and eat healthier or be more open to trying new foods if they've never tried new foods. That was Rob Horton, the founder and executive director of Trap Garden, which is a nonprofit and social enterprise that provides a sustainable source of healthy, high quality foods for food insecure communities. One of the questions that resurfaces again and again when we talk about food is how do we make organic and healthily grown fresh foods more accessible and affordable to people who are in food deserts or can't afford to pay premium for that? I think this conversation here will provide insights into how we can work with that as Rob is working to build, sustain, and empower low-income communities by assisting in the creation of community gardens and the promotion of healthy eating. So stay tuned here as we're about to explore how food deserts play into the larger systemic injustice for low-income communities, how we can build more community gardens to improve access and the affordability of healthy, fresh foods, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word.
Once again, I am Rob Horton, and I'm from actually born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. And literally, like within my neighborhood, it was definitely food sensitive. I know the term food desert, which means you know it's completely nothing within the area. But we had a grocery store that was near us, but within that grocery store, it wasn't always anything that was either going to be healthy, um, nutritious, or what was there. It just wasn't really in good use for us to be able to put into our bodies as well. So um, with that literally every morning me and my friends would go down the block to this one essential store the corner store and they didn't offer anything that was very healthy there either so on breakfast you would see people lined down the street for us children on their way to school whether they were getting cookies or chips or some of those things my personal favorite was flaming hot cheetos with uh, chili and cheese <laughs> and if you can imagine somebody actually like you know eating this and then going into the classroom you know i felt pretty bad for my teachers because me and my friends and the rest of my peers was literally bouncing off the walls in the classroom and then right after school it would be that same exact trend everybody's literally racing to go straight back to this corner store and do the same thing again mm-hmm. now with that when I talk about that grocery store that was in my community you know when my mother and I would go to that grocery store we initially didn't have a vehicle when I was a lot younger but we didn't have any issues with getting to the grocery store but when you think about you know really if you don't have a trunk space, you physically have to be able to hold the grocery items that you want to be taking home. And so with that, you're trying to get something that's going to last for a few days. You want to make sure that it's not going to be spoiling when you're trying to get transported back to your home and all of that nature. So um, at times we're creating these really big meals that were very filling, but it wasn't really a lot of difference in what we were putting into our body on a day to day because what we had access to just wasn't very diverse within that grocery store. And so if you fast forward to me actually leaving St. Louis to go to Nashville, Tennessee, to attend Tennessee State University, I was once again in a similar community. I was in a community that there was access to a grocery store, but literally almost everything within that grocery space was near spoilage for everything that was supposed to be fresh. Uh, It wasn't a lot of healthy and diverse food options. But I'm around a diverse group of people from different cities and places being in college. And, you know, they kind of opened me up to different meals that they had either had when they were a child growing up or their different dietary habits. And so I started to get more exposure to different types of foods. And so when I finally graduated from school and I started working, I had to start traveling outside of my community to go to a grocery store that provided all of these healthy and nutritious items. And I really got frustrated to the point to where I said, you know what, I'm going to see if I can at least grow some of the essential items and get involved with this community garden and see if I can actually be able to produce something that's going to be good for my body. Like, And mind you, I did not have a green thumb um, <laughs> growing up. I was not involved in any of the, the garden spaces. As, as a matter of fact, I don't even really remember seeing any gardens within my community. Um, and so my friends started coming out to this community garden space that I was involved in because they didn't believe what I was doing. And we started sharing some of our similar experiences growing up in these different types of communities. Some people had more access to uh, certain items than others did. And I really wanted to just create an experience for people who had similar backgrounds or grew up in similar communities to be able to say, one, you know, you can start to be a solution to the problem by at least growing some of those essential herbs like the basil, the thymes, things of that nature, or being able to grow something like a tomato that's going to be fresh um, and you know exactly where it's coming from. 
And then I ended up coming up with the concept of Trap Garden and wanted to just roll it out to all these communities and create the dopest experience possible. To help us understand the urgency and the importance of this work that needs to be done that you do, can you paint a picture for us of what food insecurity looks like in the United States today? It just, it just depends on the, the city or the area in which you're in. I mean, not only is it a, something that's going to be an issue for individuals who are low income in housing communities, but also if you stay in a rural area, there's not going to be a guarantee that you have access to these type of uh, major grocery stores that can have different diverse groups of food items that's going to be available for you as well. Um, so for my community, even though it was a community that I considered well, like was a great environment for growing up, it just didn't have access and support to those type of places. But primarily, you're going to find it in a, a more low income community or a community that just is like spread out or doesn't have a major transportation system that makes it easy to be able to get to these different stores. Well, with that, it definitely feels like systemic injustice in place in that our poorest communities often don't have access to fresh and healthy foods, often live in more polluted places. Uh, many people within these communities are working long hours with minimum wage jobs, sometimes multiple jobs because minimum wage no longer is enough to be considered a living wage. Um, maybe they're not performing as well in school and and in, in their jobs because of the lack of healthy foods. And as a result of this lifestyle, may fall ill more easily. And then when they get sick may not be able to afford their medical bills or have to give everything up just to be able to survive and live. I'm curious what your thoughts are on why in one of the one of the wealthiest countries in the world, people are unable to securely meet their own basic needs and have access to fresh and healthy foods. And has it always been this way? Or is this an issue that is increasing in its prominence? Uh, I think like first it's the, you know, you looking at different determinants of health and what we consider to be important to be able to live like a sustainable lifestyle as a human being, as a person. So first, if you're not making uh, income that allows for you to not only be able to purchase healthy food items, but also be able to take care of your rent and as well as being able to provide clothing for not only yourself, but if you do have children and your children as well. Then you start to think about what's going to be most important, you know, within within your life. Is it more important for me to go to this fast food restaurant and get something that could feed my family of four to five? And then I can go back to work and continue to make money for my family. Or should I take out more time to be able to go further away to where they do provide something that's healthier? Uh, it might, might take me more time to be able to prepare that meal. The freshness um, of that might not last as long. All these other issues that you have to face on top of trying to supply the needs um, of yourself or as your family as well. But on the flip side of it, if you look at grocery stores, you know, a lot of the revenue that they're generating, they're only getting pennies on the dollar for what they're selling. And so when they're looking at certain communities from the research that I've been able to do and see is that if they don't believe that they're going to be able to generate revenue off of this product, then they may or may not offer it to that community. Um, and so really you're being siloed to only be allowed to have X amount of different options to choose from. And so that's why access, providing access to a diverse group of foods, or at least opening up the community, be able to try something new is so really so pivotal uh, for us to succeed as an organization, us to get people interested in trying new foods and eating a little bit healthier, adding new foods to their diets. 
So what do you think are our biggest roadblocks to being able to address our food deserts and food apartheid today? Because it feels like there, there are a lot of layers to this, but this is definitely a prevalent issue. And it feels like we should, we should have the knowledge of what needs to be done. We should have the financial resources being in a wealthy country. So what is stopping us from being able to, to tackle this? I honestly believe that uh, it's the overall greed of wanting to be able to make a profit and make money off of certain items. Um, if you think about like the time that it might take to grow something that's organic compared to if you are putting other chemicals into it to speed up the process to be able to supply it to the consumer, then you're going to want to charge from a business standpoint a little bit more just because of the time that it takes to develop that really good quality product. But if you can put something that isn't as fresh and healthy, but it's going to sell very quickly and that you can sell like a vast and huge amount of, then that's what you're going to be pumping out into the community in order for you to be able to generate a buck quicker. So I think one is looking at the overall lifestyle in which we want to provide to our consumers, um, being able to offer something that's going to be healthy, but also affordable for those people. But from a business standpoint, understanding that long term, you might have some types of effect on the amount of revenue that you're generating um, for your organization as well. So I would definitely say that price point and the quality of options that are provided have to be one of the first and primary things. But then also the pay that these individuals are receiving within these communities that might be lower income. If you're only making $15 $15 an hour and you work in those 40 hours a week and you have to pay for you have a child, you have to pay for daycare services as well as rent along and you have to feed that person as well as feed yourself. You're quickly running through a lot of your money that you're going to be getting on a monthly basis on top of insurance and health care and all of these other things. That's why I say it's more than just an issue of um, the food itself, but also the price of the food that you have to pay for it. Mm. as well so it's a lot of it's like layers a lot of layers of issues right so in light of all this uh, you started trap garden i believe in 2014 mm-hmm. yes um to help address the issues that we just discussed after having experienced and learn about this yourself and you've laid out four components of trap garden's missions the first one is to increase the availability and access to healthy foods in food deserts across the united states create safe spaces for community interaction and fun across all ages cultures and income decrease the costs of healthier foods for food desert communities to fair market prices and the fourth one is to engage and educate the public on nutrition environment, diversity, and civic responsibility in cooperation with with local schools, libraries, and other organizations. I feel like oftentimes it's easy for us to have ideas of what we want the world to look like, but to be able to realize that is a whole nother story. So what did you do do to take the first steps in turning your vision into action, and what has been your main approaches to serving these missions? So the first thing for me is growing up in a community where I didn't have access um, to be able to eat healthy is what type of experiences would I wanted to see that would have made it fun and interesting and would have opened my mind to being even open to trying something that was new. Right. And so what I did was um, put an interesting twist, whether it was how my attire and how I dressed when I was in the garden, but also what we were able to provide for the community. And what I mean in attire and what I, how I dressed is 
uh, wearing trendy type of shoes that were really popular, but also having on some overalls and not like the big oversized overalls, but like a more slimmer cut overall so that you had an overall like um, confidence in myself and how I looked. But then also being able to represent the communities in which I was servicing as well. And so when you're talking about trying to create like a fun experience, it's how can you make this more relatable? So even with the name alone, with itself, Trap Garden. So we talk about actual trap houses. Now, these are places in which, you know, they're selling a a legal product. They're trying to get people hooked on a product so they can be able to have return customers and just being able to generate as much money as possible. My spin on that was trying to get people hooked on a fun experience and also getting them hooked on a healthier lifestyle and wanting to get them to come back for more and more of those type of experiences. And so with that alone, by being able to introduce people to gardening, to some of those essential items in the process of gardening, for people who wouldn't even in 100 years think of ever being able to be within a green space was the initial first step. You know, the first step in our process is just getting people's hands in the soil, seeing what we were doing and seeing how you could be able to easily get started. And we continue to just build on there. Through research, we've seen that a lot of people uh, or a lot of the individuals who had um, actual input on what was going to be put in the household were children and mothers. And so you can can convince the child to be able to pick up an apple instead of a bag of chips. Then the parent would be more than likely to purchase that for their child. Um, And so what we did was develop a program called Eat, Grow, Live, in which we were going into elementary schools and providing some educational support, really fun activities to get students engaged in the process of, hey, let's try this healthy snack item, as well as teaching you about how they created this healthy snack item from, from seed or from form to table. Right. And then on top of that, getting them more engaged in the process by saying, what would your marketing plan or strategy be to get your friends interested in these same items? And these are third and fourth grade students um, who actually are coming from these lower income housing areas within Nashville who are now ingrained and interested in trying something new, sharing the experience with their friends and then going shopping with their parents and telling them, oh, I just had this in class. I would love to have it again. And it's at a low cost. It's affordable to the household. So those are some of the initial steps in which we took to get people interested in what we were doing. But then we partnered with Toyota as part of their Toyota Green Initiative. And we were able to create some really fun and exciting and engaging activations at different sporting events and different music festivals to get people just geared around the conversation of what really am I putting into my body and how can I make very small changes to either introduce new items or live a more healthier lifestyle. And that really did just kind of take off and help us and assist us a lot. You touched on the education piece earlier. In your experience, have have nutrition and environmental stewardship been sidelined in public education? And what do you think can be the impact of integrating this into, say, a third grade or fourth grader fourth grader's education? I think it'll have a huge impact. I mean, the earlier that you get someone interested in at least trying something new as well as being a healthier option, then once they get older, they will continue those patterns and trends. What we've noticed is it's harder for an adult who might have been eating fast food for the last 30, 40 years to change that pattern 
and eat healthier or be more open to trying new foods if they've never tried new foods. Um, I remember one time trying to introduce someone to sushi who had never had sushi before. And this is someone in their their late 20s, early 30s. They were just not open to the option at all of even trying it to where someone who was younger, they were more open to at least trying it. Now, whether they like it or not, they're going to tell you because kids are the most (laughs) honest people in the world. They're going to let you know. But at least they will say that they've tried it and that they didn't like it, but they might be open to still trying new items until they find something that they do like. And I think there's also research showing that when when we have meaningful experiences interacting with nature in our childhood, we're more likely to be environmental advocates when we grow up because we understand that value. And on top of that, they, they can see and people, I think, recognize within us as an organization when you're genuine about what you're doing. We think it is very important to continue to bring community members to the table to help solve the issues in which we're facing for as whether it comes to food sensitivity or trying to bring something that's new to the community. In every garden in which we've launched, we've worked with community members, not coming to a community and saying we have the answers. This is what you need to do and you will have a better outcome, but actually allowing for them to have a seat at the table and us collectively working as a team to say, let's just try something new. And see how it works, because we don't automatically come within a space and say, you have to do it this way. But how can we work together to build something that's going to be better than what we have right now? I was going to say one of your primary goals is to increase the availability and access to healthy foods in food deserts across the United States. So to really scale this this solution. So I'm wondering, what is this looking like in practice today, as in how many food deserts have you taken on by setting up community gardens? And what is that deeper process for you when you're looking at new food deserts to address? Because I'm imagining there is a lot of complex work that needs to be done, like getting to know the community, finding a central location that makes the most sense, uh, testing the soil quality and seeing if there's contamination, because sometimes in lower income communities, uh, their lands and soils may have been polluted by manufacturing facilities nearby. So how do you navigate all of this? And what is most important as you plan this expansion of community gardens and food deserts? Well, what I learned is really the issue wasn't with with the testing of the sto- of the soil or even establishing the garden space, because in most of the cities we go to, you can easily just get a small box um, from your local uh, government entity to be able to put some of the samples of the soil into, ship it off, and then they'll send you your results. And it's a really feasible at about ten to twelve dollars to be able to do that. Uh, the second thing is even with Most of the gardens we work with, we do raised bed gardens, which helps a lot as well because we're still bringing in some fresh soil and compost to be able to mix into that raised bed to make sure that we're trying to make that soil as healthy as possible. The issue in which we run into when we're trying to either establish a new program or a new garden site is the longevity and sustainability of that site. Because one, when we do establish gardens, what we usually do is partner with small businesses, organizations or schools to be able to utilize extra space they have, sell it as a beautification piece to them and then bring in community members that can assist and support in the growing process. We've launched about six community gardens. And at this standpoint, only two still remain. The primary reason is because we don't own any of the property that we're growing on. Mm -hmm. 
And a lot of times cities are, are changing and going through gentrification so heavily that if a new owner comes and purchases the property, then they'll and, and if they decide that they no longer want to utilize that space as a community garden space, then that garden goes by the wayside. Uh, so I would say one thing is being able to have some type of ownership within that space, something that we're going to have to tackle down the line. The second piece is that the most pivotal person within that process is having a community champion who can actually be able to lead it once you establish it, create some programming, and then you you kind of step away. Because one thing that we said that we wanted to do is make sure that they have ownership of what's being created. If we're the ones as a team collectively, continuously going out into that space and managing it and maintaining it, then they're still not having full responsibility of that space. Um, and so having that actual community leader who can be the person that's consistently out there, who is in the who lives in the community, who is talking to community members, getting them involved and getting them active is the most crucial thing that we as a team can actually have in any of these spaces. Right. Because I was also wondering, you know, once you set up these gardens, how do you go about encouraging local community members to get engaged So that feels like the key piece is having a a local community champion who can engage the people that that they already know within their communities. Yes. And then we usually try to have at least one um, supportive event, as well as we still provide any educational content or piece or we'll send a team member out to assist um, during that, that primary growing season as well. So they do still have the support uh, of our organization. But it's just so crucial for long term sustainability for them to have control. I mean, lo and behold, if we were ever to be uh, no longer be an organization, we would still want these spaces to thrive and these community and these people who are utilizing it to still be able to support it as well. And what do you think we need to be able to address that gentrification piece? You mentioned, obviously, owning these pieces of land can help. Um, How would we go about making that happen so that local communities can own own these lands or uh, your social enterprise can make that happen? Or what do you envision that looking like? So even though we're a nonprofit organization, I always say that we run more like a a small business. We offer services to be able to generate uh, revenue, to be able to support our mission and what we're trying to do within the community. Uh, I think that it's important for us to be able to partner with people who can utilize our services. So, for example, I talked about the school education program that we have that actually has um, a price fee that's attached to it that we can a donation for us to be able to continue supporting our initiatives in which we're doing within the community. Depending on the size of the lot and the property, um, that would be a case of us just either either raising those funds to be able to have it for long term and it actually being our property, but also learning what other resources can we provide within that space to be able to generate revenue as well to manage it, whether it is selling some of the produce in which we are producing to um, some local distributors, whether it be a, a grocery store or a restaurant or something as small that we can quickly be able to uh, distribute out to the public and grow pretty easily on our own. Because a lot of the land and property that we're using is very small scale. We want people to first get exposure and then we want to be able to provide um, education. 
the next piece of that is being able to provide opportunities to be able to employ people from the community. Because, I mean, it's, it's great if you know how to grow and you're growing some of your essential items. But it's still important to be able to go to the grocery store and be able to purchase, whether it's a grocery store or a farmer's market or somewhere local where you can purchase food, to be able to have the, the resources and the means to be able to do that. Um, like I was talking about the determinants of health, it's, it's not just access to the food, but the uh, ability to be able to purchase the food once you have it available within your community as well. Right. Mm. So so many different layers that we still have to tackle as we're going through this process. Right. Something that's been really baffling for me is thinking about how we can at the same time empower our farm workers by paying them more fairly, while also making healthy, fresh and organic foods more affordable for people with less economic privilege. Because on the flip side of this, there's also systemic oppression in our food production system, where the average mm-hmm. lifespan of our farm workers is something like 40, 49 years old. They're often undocumented immigrants without legal protection of their labor rights or the ability to unionize and fight for better pay. So do you think the two goals of improving access and affordability of healthy foods um, and the other goal of empowering our farm workers, are these two goals necessarily at odds with one one another? Because by paying farmers more, the end prices will be higher and make them less affordable. Or do you see these as two separate issues that can be addressed simultaneously? That's a really good question. I would have to say that these are still two separate issues, because even if you look at the amount of food that is wasted, that a farmer produces, you know, a lot of the ugly fruits or the ugly foods because of the shape in which it's created. So even how the person visualizes what a piece of food or fruit or vegetable should look like within a grocery store if it doesn't look like how they already imagined it, they're less than likely to purchase it. So grocery stores are not even accepting certain food items from farmers at all. So that's that's one issue within itself. I think that this is an issue overall that's going to be the toughest by being able to have some type of influence or some type of legislature that's going to change the price of what this item could be sold for within a grocery store. Because you do want to make sure that the, the farmer is properly compensated for all the work in which they're putting into But we want to make sure that that person who buys it in the end is making a livable wage to where it doesn't affect them from not being able to purchase that item. I think that what we do the strongest as an organization is being able to engage and educate the community, as well as being able to create these safe spaces that's going to be fun and intriguing to our target audience community members. So when you envision a future where food deserts no longer exist and everyone has access to fresh and healthy foods and are able to afford them, what does that picture look like? And what do you think we need most in order to get there? So earlier I talked about me and my friends and the community going to this one corner store, right? And it being a line of people outside. You know, there's places like Walgreens that they say they want to have a Walgreens on every corner. Me personally, what I would love to have is a healthier corner store on every block in every community to be able to provide access. And I think in order to achieve that goal, you have to be engaged with your community, also know the needs of the community, as well as from a supply chain management standpoint, really know how much of all of those fresh food items that you need to have within the store 
and have a diverse group of items. When I talk about eating healthier, I'm not talking about eliminating all of the other items in which you're eating because we don't judge what people eat. We just provide education and more options. And so we can create more of a balance within that space, be able to build these relationships with the community, as well as being able to establish these brick and mortar stores that can still be profitable or offer other services to make sure that we're still in the green, then we would definitely be those individuals who are putting an end to this major issue on which we're facing within the U.S. And finally, to close, what do you think we can do as individuals, no matter where we live or our own accessibility to healthy and fresh foods? What can we do to support the food deserts closest to us to gain access to fresh and healthy foods and to reclaim our collective agency of our food choices and their impacts? So I would say that the first step is I always recommending at least trying out a a new herb within your household and you actually buying it and, and growing it yourself. So even if you were to start with a transplant, a plant that's already been starting, some of those essential herbs in which you use in your dishes, see the difference in the taste if you're the one that's growing it and you're the one that's taking care of that plant and it's not dry and it's fresh. Start incorporating that into your meals. Um, Start, you know, purchase a plant for somebody else to try. And once you have a collective group of people who can really buy into the concept of they would prefer to have this healthier item, Then get in contact with your local grocery store and tell them the items in which you prefer. The bigger the pool of people that you can get to support what you have going on, the better. But make sure you're just taking those gradual steps. Always just take the next best step is what I recommend. But start very small and then just watch that seed grow and watch what it can turn into. Before we go into our final five, a quick update here on our Green Dreamer planners. There was some delay, which I should have predicted, but it's coming along and it probably will launch within the first two weeks of December, hopefully just in time for the holidays. So come sign up to our weekly digest newsletter at greendreamer.com to stay posted on the specifics. Some things to note here, though, in the meantime, they're going to feature our major environmental awareness dates. There are going to be two spreads dedicated to each week, so you can plan, dream, and reflect openly and freely. Uh, They're going to be inspirational quotes from some of our past guests sprinkled throughout, as well as goal-setting guides and gratitude lists. And for the technical details, they're currently being printed and made locally to me in Southern California using 100% recycled paper. More updates soon at greendreamer.com slash planners. But for now, to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or a publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? I would say the book that's been most profound for me would have to be The Alchemist. Uh, what do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? The same thing I just said earlier, just take the next best step. We often try to, you know, just boil the entire ocean or hit a home run every time <laughs> we're at the plate. But sometimes you just need to get on base. Uh, what's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Decreasing the amount of time that I spend on social media. Social media for us can is, is a huge component of being able to help us to be able to receive more support and more business. But then I know me personally, the competitiveness, you're always looking at other pages and you're always thinking that you should be doing more or something different or another place within your life. 
So decreasing the amount of time that um, I spend on social media. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? Uh, recycling. My, my wife is huge on recycling. So making sure that we have a local place to be able to take all of our goods and really reading all the labels to make sure that we're putting it in the right place. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? The community, the people that we consistently engage with, our Trap Garden family and team, uh, the belief that we can consistently be able to add one additional person that supports our mission and initiative and is willing to help. Well, Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Rob's work, you can head to www.trapgarden.org. And you can also follow him on Instagram at trapgarden. I'll have this linked in the show notes as well that you can find at greendreamer.com in case you're on the go right now. Um, Rob, what are some ways that our listener can support or get involved with your work? So if you are in the Nashville or ever traveling to the Nashville community, you can always visit our website and check out the volunteer opportunities that we have. If you would like to donate or receive more information on how you can create your own community garden space, uh, that is also available on the website. And then we really do have some cool merch and other things you can purchase online as well. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and for this hugely important work that you're doing. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Take it one step at a time. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. You can sign up to our weekly digest to get solutions-based news delivered to you at greendreamer.com. You can subscribe to Green Dreamer on YouTube at greendreamer.com slash YouTube. And you can also become a patron and access extended content as well as our Green Dreamer network, uh, starting at just $2 per month by going to greendreamer.com slash support. As we're wrapping up here, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.